Good morning, church. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word at the end of the reading, um, I will conclude by saying this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, um, Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 13, and verses 18 through 29. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20 says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And then to Genesis. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. He said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate. And he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, Emily. You guys can grab a seat. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. 
Daylight savings time is upon us. Hillcrest Coffee is available there on the back, so feel free to avail yourself to that before we get started. My name is Ian. If I have a chance to meet you, I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. And we're actually going to begin uh, this time with a little family business. So I'm going to invite the Whitfields uh, back up here. Um, if you're new this morning, you're just jumping in on, on the family business with us. So thanks, thanks for being here. Um, I have a heavy announcement, uh, a sad one for us, but also one that we are trusting uh, that God is uh, working out the details of. Uh, Ryan and Whitney, it's clear that the Lord is uh, actually calling them back to their home in uh, Tallahassee. And so I know that's really hard news for us. I hope this is, I thought it'd be easier second service. <clears throat> it's not. Um, it's obviously sad news for us because we love the Whitfields. Uh, you know, Ryan and I had a dream. We always like to joke. We always exaggerate how long it's been. So it's probably been like 20 years ago now that we had a dream to really plant this church together. And uh, the Lord granted that, uh, that opportunity for them to be down here. But I just want to talk you through a few of the details as to why this is happening. And I want to be clear, nothing has happened between the church and the Whitfields. We love them dearly. If I could play God in this scenario, I'd make sure they stay. But alas, I'm not. Um, but what's happened is that uh, they've moved down here. Whitney was doing ophthalmology uh, medical residency over at USF, and that's coming to an end, and she has got a really uh, cool opportunity back in Tallahassee to begin uh, practicing. And so that's part of the picture. They're also having a baby this week, if you can believe that, so pray for them. Uh, baby Jace is arriving. All of their family is kind of back up that way, so it gets them a little bit closer. And they're dealing with some kind of serious family health issues that they'll be able to uh, be closer to to support. So. Uh, in all of that, it's clear and evident that the Lord is uh, calling them back in that direction. Now, obviously, that's sad news for us here, and so we, we do experience sadness in that, and that's okay. That's appropriate in the family of God. Uh, but I want to call our attention to three things kind of in this season as we uh, are in this kind of transition period now. Um, first of all, I guess I should tell you the good news is they're not leaving soon. So they'll, they'll be here till the end of June. So we can, we've got lots of time left with them. We'll have a chance to uh, bless them as they have this baby this week. And so they're not leaving tomorrow. Uh, we'll have them through the end of June. And so that's good news. Uh, but as we kind of are in this season, there's three things I want us to do. The first is this. The scriptures tell us to outdo one another in showing honor and to give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So if you have been blessed by the Whitfields, Show them honor for that. Let them know. Encourage them. Uh, that's one of the best things that we can do as the family of God. Express your gratitude for them. Uh, I mean, Ryan is one of our pastors, right? He's served in that role faithfully. And so we can, in our prayers and in our conversations with them, uh, just express our gratitude and our thanks. I would encourage you to do that. No one is ever over-encouraged, okay? We all need it. So please, encourage them in that. Uh, secondly, please be praying for them. Uh, pray for them as they prepare for this transition. And uh, specifically, they have asked that we pray uh, that they find a church home in Tallahassee. And so pray that the Lord would guide their steps and open up opportunities that are there for them to be a meaningful part of a church body with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And then thirdly, obviously, pray for us here at the King's Church. Pray for uh, kind of the gaps that this does leave for us. Pray for our leadership as we uh, figure out what next steps look like. We will certainly keep you aware of what those needs are and uh, opportunities to be praying more specifically. Uh, but obviously, this is going to be a big transition for us as a church, so we covet your prayers in that way. Uh, before we jump in, can we pray for the Whitfields? Um, so let, let's go before the Lord. Let's thank God for them, and, and let's pray for this transition period. Y'all come on in a little bit closer. Team Green up here. Here we go. <laughs> Uh, Father, we come to you with uh, heavy hearts today as we uh, just kind of announce and process this news, but ultimately, Lord, we're grateful. We're so grateful for your faithfulness to us, so grateful for uh, Ryan and Whitney. We pray for baby Jace, who's coming this week. Lord, we 
I mean, we love them. They've been such a blessing to us, blessing to me personally. Uh, how cool it is that you answered so many prayers for them to even make their way down here in the first place. And so, Father, uh, we just come to you with, with grateful hearts. Thanks for the opportunity we've had to do this together, and thanks that we have some more time together uh, to continue walking alongside them. Uh, God, I pray that you would be uh, with this transition period. I pray that you would provide for them the next steps as far as what church looks like in Tallahassee. Uh, give them a body of believers that can come around them and support them and be brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray as they uh, transition out here from the King's Church that you would allow our body to just be a blessing to them. Help us to express our gratitude, encourage them, uh, just speak the gospel to them as they leave, Lord. And I pray that this season of transition that you would be in over and through all the things that need to work out. God, we know that you are sovereign. You are faithful to your word. You are good to provide for all of our needs. So we have no reason to panic, no reason to fear in this season. But we do come with an honesty, God. This is sad news, but one that we are trusting that you are working out the details of. So bless my brother, bless my sister, God. Thank you for just the massive blessing they have been to us here. I pray that we would express that and that you would, God, just be faithful to show yourself to be true and glorious and holy and that we would submit our lives to you because of that. Help us now as we uh, attempt to preach a sermon. Be with your pastor. Pray that you would... Uh, help me to preach and that we would land at the good news of Jesus and that you would encourage our hearts today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We love you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Can we give them a little appreciation now? Thank you. All right. I did not say, too, we will definitely be celebrating them in style before they leave. So don't worry. Um, that day is coming. We'll let you know more details as that comes. All right. I'm going to try to preach now. Pray for me. This Hebrews 11 verse is, it's short, and when I'm reading it, sometimes I wonder, like, the author of Hebrews, like, he is a glass, completely full optimist. That's my impression of Hebrews 11 so far. Because if you read Hebrews 11, it says, you know, by faith, Isaac pronounced these future blessings on Jacob and Esau. But, I mean, you listen to the story that Emily read, right? I mean, that is a mess of a story. How is it possible that it is by faith that Isaac is doing something that is worthwhile for us to consider as we try to live by faith? That's kind of the challenge that's before us today. Uh, and with that one verse, we're really going to kind of camp out in Genesis 27 because there's, there's just a little bit to work on in Hebrews. So we're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis 27. And as we look there, I mean, I know we all have family dysfunction of some kind, right? But this is like next level family dysfunction. I mean, this story has all of the drama of basically a daytime soap opera or a lifetime Christmas special. It almost feels too manufactured, but alas, it's right here in the scriptures. I mean, you've got these warring parents who clearly aren't talking or communicating to one another. You've got a sibling rivalry between twins who despise each other. You've got this ridiculous scene to steal some kind of end time blessing, end of life blessing, I should say, that's full of drama and it just feels hard to believe. You have the near miss moment of Esau coming back in the house right after Jacob leaves, right? I mean, it almost feels too manufactured to be true, but alas, it's right here in our scriptures. And it somehow shows up in Hebrews 11. So today, here's the questions I want us to wrestle with. How is Isaac acting in faith in this moment? And what does that teach us about living a life of enduring faith today? That's what we're going to carefully examine and hopefully land this morning as we look uh, at this passage. Here's, here's our mandate. Here's, I think what, here's what I think Hebrews is pointing us to today. The life of faith embraces God's sovereign work of blessing the undeserving and redeeming the unlikely. 
The life of faith embraces God's sovereign work of blessing the undeserving and redeeming the unlikely. Let's start right there with that idea of the unlikely blessing. All right, let's go back to Genesis and let's work our way to Hebrews from there. The story of Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, it begins very reminiscent of the story of Isaac's parents, Abraham and Sarah. As we've already talked about, if you've been with us in this series, they've been promised a child, but there's infertility, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and there's just a trusting that has to take place on the Lord. Well, the story with Isaac and Rebekah is the same. The promise of God is to flow through Isaac's line, but yet there's no children. God makes them wait 20 years before children come, and then all of a sudden, God answers their prayer. Rebecca becomes pregnant, and it turns out she is having twins. They are, according to Genesis, quote, struggling together within her. Now, I've never been pregnant, certainly never pregnant with twins, but that feels like it'd be uncomfortable. So Rebecca's looking to the Lord like, what is happening inside of me? And then the Lord speaks to her, and he says this in Genesis 25, beginning in 23. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within, within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red and hairy, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Now, what God is doing in that promise to Rebekah is he is breaking the customary pattern of how the society would have viewed a firstborn son. You see, God is overlooking the priority and the privilege that was automatically associated with the oldest son, and he says the older is going to serve the younger. You see, it's the firstborn son that received the lion's share of the father's possessions and inheritance. It was the firstborn son that was the heir apparent to the fortune, the family business or trade, the land, and any other things that the family had accrued. Now, I'm a firstborn, so I don't see a lot of issues with that, but it does strike us as a bit kind of countercultural, right? How is there that much stake on a firstborn son? But that's how the culture works. And then God comes and he makes a surprising declaration. What he's doing is he is working in an unlikely way that's going to set an unusual trajectory into motion from this point forward. And indeed, this comes to fruition as God's promises always do. And brothers and sisters, here's what I want us to pause and appreciate for just a minute. This is the usual pattern in which God works. God works in unlikely ways with unlikely people. That is what God does, okay? I don't know if you believe me yet, so let me briefly give you a defense as to why that's the case. Okay, we've already seen this with Abraham, if you've been walking with us through this series. Right, Abraham, who God deems him that name, the father of a multitude, but he has no children. He makes him wait until he's 100 years old and his wife is 90. Unlikely people, unlikely ways. We'll see this with Jacob and his children. Jacob, we're going to look at next week, is going to be called Israel. And Israel, Jacob, his 12 sons, there's a story there, by the way, become the 12 tribes of Israel. Skip ahead, Moses is a murderer and a stutterer and someone who was very fearful, but yet he leads the people of Israel out of, ex out of the exodus from Egypt. Israel itself is not the mightiest of the nations. In fact, God shows up and says, you're not all that. In fact, you are the least and the fewest of all people. 
And if God himself says you're the least and the fewest of all people, you ain't got nothing to be proud of, okay? That's Israel. Well, see, with David, King David was the youngest of eight sons. Which, by the way, you're seeing a pattern here with the youngest. Youngest of eight sons. He wasn't even there for the draft to be king. Samuel shows up, puts all the, the uh, brothers up to him, and he's like, oh, no, not here. And they're all looking around like, well, it can't possibly be David. I mean, he's out in the field. He's just a little guy, right? And that's who they go with. And, of course, we see this most profoundly with Jesus himself, don't we? He comes as God in the flesh, and he's just so ordinary. He's born in an unimpressive place. He's not in a palace, but in a stable in Bethlehem. Right? He grows up in Nazareth, a town with a reputation. He doesn't progress up his religious elite status. Instead, he works as a carpenter. He was unimpressive by the world's standards. But not only that, Isaiah 53 tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. If you'll keep humoring me, we keep going from there. We see it with the disciples who were fishermen and tax collectors, kind of a ragtag group of individuals, right? They were uneducated common men, according to the religious elites of the day. They were not the cream of the crop. They would have been passed over decades ago for the role that Jesus invites them into. And listen, brothers and sisters, you might think you bring a lot to the table, but this is our story as well. God uses unlikely people in unlikely ways. This is his work. But let's ask the question, why? Why does he do that? Why does he seem to almost revel in delight in flipping upside down the standards of the world? Well, there's something about the Jacob and Esau story that is fundamental to the gospel itself. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel is not us bringing our impressiveness. It's not us bringing our good deeds and our standards before God and saying, hey, I'm right here, use me. No, 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 the gospel is all staked on the faithfulness and power of God and God alone. It is not about our own strength and power. It is God's work through and through. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He's talking to this church that has a bit of an ego. They have a pride issue. And he says this, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God uses unlikely people in unlikely ways so that he gets all the glory because it's his work to begin with. I love how Jared Wilson, one author, puts this. He says, if we were designing a movement to take over the world and claim dominion over the universe you would not come up with Christianity. It's true, isn't it? The beauty of the gospel is that you don't have to be great to wield its power. It actually helps if you're not great because the gospel's greatness is enough. When we look at the story of Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Rebekah, that's what is true. These people are not great. The gospel and God is great enough. From top to bottom, God uses unlikely people in unlikely ways. And here's the thing, it's not just that they are unlikely, they're flat out undeserving. Okay, so let's move from the unlikely blessing to the undeserved blessing. Let's just do a quick flyover of the characters here in Genesis 27. Let's start with Isaac. He's, of course, the long-promised son of Abraham, now the patriarch of his family. 
And he's presented in an interesting light throughout Genesis. The first thing that Genesis really wants us to know about this family dynamic is that Isaac has a favorite son. Now, I know as parents, right, we're not supposed to have favorite children. Isaac has a favorite child. If you go back to Genesis 25, beginning in 27, it says this. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And here's the comment. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is not meant to be a look at how great these parents are statement. This is meant to be this is a problem. Isaac is showing favoritism to Esau precisely because he likes to eat the meals that are prepared from his hunting. That's Isaac, okay? And look, I, I love a delicious meal, so don't, don't get me wrong, but that does seem a bit shallow, right? Isaac, on another occasion, he pulls a move like his father, and he passes off his wife as his sister. We'll just fly over that. It's self-protection. It's not great. And then he seems to be completely disregarding what the Lord said in Genesis 25. Now, maybe, maybe, because God shows up to Rebekah and says the older will serve the younger. Maybe they never talked about it. It's possible. Feels unlikely. Okay, so I'm reading a bit into the text. But he has no interest in that, does he? He gets to what he thinks is the end of his life. He's going to live 80 more years, by the way. you got to love Genesis. But he gets to the end of his life, what he thinks is the end of his life, and he tries to get Esau in real quick to kind of get this little secret of blessing, right? He knows what God has said, and he has no interest in doing it. See, it turns out Isaac's eyes were dim in more ways than just physical sight, spiritually blind to what's happening. All right, that's Isaac. How about Esau? I don't know how to put this. Esau's just not a great dude in the scriptures. Like, there's no positive picture of him anywhere. So, sorry if your name is Esau. God uses unlikely people, unlikely ways, right? Grace for you, too. But Esau is not a good figure. The first story we get of him, after his birth account, is him coming in from hunting, exhausted, hungry, hangry, even. And he sees his brother right there kind of cooking up some red stew. And Jacob, we'll get to him in a minute because he's a liar and a deceiver. He looks at Esau and he basically says, ah, you're hungry, right? How about the stew for your birthright? That's not a fair trade. And Esau basically is like, ah, I guess. Must not be a good hunter, by the way. Came back empty-handed just to eat the stew. But Esau just flippantly gives up his birthright. And then he despises it later. He's shirking his responsibility to lead his family and his people as the firstborn. And then his people, the Edomites, are a problem for the rest of the Old Testament. Okay, that's Esau. How about Rebekah? She's the mastermind behind this deceptive plot in Genesis 27. Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. So she hatches this whole idea. She's willing to go to crazy lengths to ensure that Jacob gets this in the way that she deems. I mean, it says in 27:13 that she said to Jacob, when he's having some hesitations, let your curse be on me. I mean, she's invoking a curse upon herself if this doesn't work out. So she's committed to this, and then we get to Jacob, of course. Jacob is hard to like. He wouldn't, I think, be someone you would want to be friends with. His name literally means deceiver. The idea of being a heel grabber in Israelite culture, in this Hebrew language, was literally an idiom for being deceptive. And this little microcosm of his story is going to be what's played out over and over and over again. Now, God's grace is going to meet Jacob in a profound moment. And we'll look at that next week, so come back for Jacob's redemption then. But it's not happening today. He's deceptive. He's a liar. He's a cheater. And although he's hesitant, by the time it's time to role play, he's fully in. I mean, he says, when Isaac's like, how'd the food get here so fast? Did you, did you hear what he said? Ah, the Lord provided. 
Do you get how absurd this is? This is the family we're dealing with. This is the family by which God made a promise that he obligated himself to on both ends that said through your family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. This is who he's working with. It's meant to be absurd. As another commentator noted as well, just continuing in Genesis 27, all five human senses are emphasized in this passage. I mean, you have the failing eyesight. You have the sound of Rebecca overhearing what's happening in the room. You have the smell of the game and the smell of the fake clothing that Jacob has thrown on. You have the touch of the hairy skin and a kiss that happens on the cheek. And you have, of course, the tasting of that game that Isaac so loved. But while these five senses are all there, they're completely numb to God, completely hardened, calloused to the things related to the God who had made this promise to begin with. They're operating as they see fit, willing to get their own way at all costs, excluding others and doing whatever it takes to be in control. You see, it's not just the unlikely that get a blessing. It is the flat-out undeserving. And it's interesting when the Apostle Paul reflects on this story of Jacob and Esau in Romans 9. And I know Romans 9, if you know your Bible, can be controversial. It talks about election and God's sovereign plan. But here's the thing. When he talks about Jacob and Esau, the whole point is this, that God chose to bless Jacob, yes, Jacob, that guy, so that his purposes might continue, and quote, so that you know it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's all about God who has mercy. If we learn anything from this story, it's that God is merciful to the undeserving. Or consider what... An Old Testament scholar, Bruce Waltke, says, he says, fulfilling God's plans is a family of faith and failure. Isaac, who depends on his fallible senses and lacks resoluteness. Rebecca, who acts by domination and deception. Jacob, who deceives and blasphemously lies. But there's a message of hope for the church in this. For the eruption of the kingdom of God ultimately depends on God's sovereign grace, not on human faithfulness. God's promise of hope overrides all of this failure, ultimately using these fallible people to accomplish his good work. That's what this story is telling us. If you're in this room and you feel unworthy and undeserving of God's favor and love, guess what? That's the point. It, in fact, it's the prerequisite to the whole thing. So if you're here and you're undeserving and you've messed up and you're in need of grace, that's the point. God loves to bless the undeserving. It feels scandalous, doesn't it? It feels unfair. Again, that's the gospel. That's the point. Now, it does ask, it does, it's worth begging the question, what's the big deal with this blessing? I mean, it's what they're all after in, in Genesis 27. They're all trying to jockey to make sure they line it up just properly. So what's going on? Well, it's clear from the text this blessing is not just the idea of, of how we view blessing. Right, we tend to view blessing as circumstantial good things are happening to us, or maybe we got a raise at work, or maybe this great thing occurred that we really wanted to happen, and we get on social media, and we're like, oh, I'm so blessed to tell you this news. Right, that's how we use blessed. That's not what's going on here. There's something deeper happening. It's not just a good luck or a good job. The blessing in this society had to do with someone's destiny. It had to do with their vision of the future that was out ahead of them. You see that birthright? that Esau sold, it had to do with the father's inheritance, his possessions, all of his stuff. But the blessing had to do with the father's vision of your future. He's looking at you and saying, this is who you're going to become. 
And that's a big deal. We know how powerful this is, right? I mean, literally that word in, in blessing in Hebrews 11 is where we get our word eulogize from. This is what Isaac is doing. He is eulogizing future blessing over his son. And there's power in this. I mean, imagine when someone important to you, maybe it's a grandparent, maybe it is a father or a mother, maybe it's a teacher, a coach, a boss, just someone that you love and respect. Imagine when that person comes to you and says, hey, listen, I love you. I'm proud of you. And here is what I see God doing with your future. That's a powerful moment, isn't it? Some of us in this room have longed for that moment from an earthly standpoint, haven't we? It's powerful. You never forget that. It could change the trajectory of your whole life. That's what's happening in this blessing. And when it has the backing of God's word and God's will, it's even more powerful. That's what's at stake. So how in the world is Isaac acting by faith? Because that's what Hebrews says, that by faith he did this. I think there's a small hint in Genesis 27. If you've got your copy of the scriptures, open up to Genesis 27, verse 33. Or flip open, scroll open, whatever you got. Rebecca has prepared this meal. Jacob has come in. He's gotten the blessing. Then Esau returns. And then in verse 33, it says, Isaac trembled very violently. In the Hebrew, it literally says, he trembled a great trembling exceedingly. It's meant to be an exaggeration, that he's, he's literally losing it. Okay? And he said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. And then he has this little line that I think is so critical, and he says, yes, or in another translation, indeed, and he shall be blessed. What's Isaac doing in that moment? What he could have done was say, oh, how dare Jacob, that scoundrel. Let's get him back in here. We're reversing this up. He could have said, God, how could you possibly allow this to happen? He could wrestle with that, right? But you know what he's doing there? He's yielding. He's yielding. He's not fighting it anymore. All the deception that is happening in this story, we can't miss that at the end of the day, Isaac pronounces a blessing and he stands by the words that are there. He doesn't go back and try to reverse it. He allows the whole trajectory of what he has said to go to the son that he did not love. Well, how does he get there? He stops fighting. He stops trying to grasp for control. He's got to know about the promise from God, and he finally just says, oh, fine, let it be. And Hebrews tells us it's by faith. As crazy as it sounds, it is by faith. He is taking the past faithfulness, the promises of God to him through his father Abraham, and God and his divine sovereignty and providence worked it out, so he pronounced that blessing, and he said, all right, we'll let it stand. I'm yielding. I'm trusting you in faith. He has an uncertainty about how this is all going to play out. Surely he's confused. Surely he's even a little bit frustrated, but he says, your will be done. And that, brothers and sisters, is the life of faith, is it not? We don't have all the details. We don't know how it all works. But God has said what he promised will come true. He promised it. It came true. He yields. He yields. And it's by faith. Now let's zoom out from there. What does this story of faith in future blessings mean for us today as we seek to endure by faith? Like, what's, what's the word for us that's here? Well, I want to tease out two big implications, but I think what's happening is that this moment of blessing is pointing us to an ultimate blessing. 
There's something greater going on here that the people of faith must grab hold of if we're going to endure. Okay, so here's two implications I want to tease out. The first is this. Our deepest desire for blessing has been offered to us in Jesus Christ. Our deepest desire for blessing has been offered to us to be received by faith. Think about it. We all crave the blessing and approval that is sought after in this story, don't we? I mean, we want that moment where that influential person or that father, when they look at us and they say, I love you, I'm proud of you, and your future, it's bright, it's secure, everything's going to work out okay in the end. Don't we want that? Deep down, we do. We want to know it's going to be okay. The problem is we go about it like this family does. We go about it like Esau, and we just presume upon the riches and the kindness of God, rather than, as Romans 2 warns, that we're, we're not to presume on the riches and kindness of God because his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. The story of Esau, the commentary in the New Testament is that he did not repent. He presumed upon the kindness of God. And we can do the same. We have to be very careful. We don't just act like things are cool when they're not. But I think more often what we do is exactly what Rebecca and Jacob do. We want that security. We want that future blessing. So what do we do? Well, we dress up like somebody else. We don't let people really show us who we are. We want to be impressive, right? We want to manipulate the situation. We want to try and take control and take matters into our own hands. Because here's the tension of the narrative. God promised that the older was going to serve the younger. God already gave his word directly to Rebecca. And surely Jacob knows this as her favorite son, that God was going to continue the line of blessing through him. But what happened? The moment that they, from a fleshly standpoint, went, ah, I don't see how this is going to work out. We better jump in. We better take control. We better manipulate and make sure that we get our way here rather than trusting in a patient faith in a God who is faithful. This is what we do all the time. While we're waiting for the promises of God, we are tempted and so often we grab hold of what we think is best. There's a better way. There's a better way in the gospel. Think about Jacob for just a moment. Think about the moment he's thrown on this furry coat. He's not himself. He goes to his father, and his father, finally, after all of the shenanigans, is convinced, okay, this is Esau. Let me give him this blessing. In that moment, Jacob is hearing the words he has probably longed to hear his entire life. You're my son. I love you. I'm proud of you. And look at what your future is going to look like. But put yourself in Jacob's shoes for a minute. You know how hollow that must have been? He thinks that he's talking to Esau, and Jacob knows that. It's a hollow blessing for Jacob. It has to be like a, it's a moment where he's, he's hearing the words coming out of his father's mouth, and he wants to believe them, but how could he possibly believe them? But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we never have that experience in the gospel. We never have an experience where God's promises of future blessing to us ring hollow. That's the good news that's held out for us. And the reason why is because of the finished work of Christ. There's a little throwaway sentence again in there that I drew your attention to where Rebecca says, hey, listen, if this goes wrong, let the curse fall on me. And in that moment, the gospel is actually revealed to us. Because you know why we are blessed? Do you know why the undeserved and the unlikely are blessed in God? Because Jesus was a curse in our place. He became the cursed one so that us, the unlikely, the undeserving, the unimpressive, we get blessing. 
We get blessing. When the Father looks at us, do you know how he sees you? He sees you as he sees Christ. We are co-heirs with Jesus. The blessing that Jesus gets, we get as well. Does it feel too good to be true? That's the point. That's the gospel. You see, we don't ever have to fear a hollow blessing that just haunts us. In Christ, we trust because of his finished work, because he took our place, because he was cursed on our behalf that we get blessing. Here's how Romans 8 puts it, this whole idea of blessing and being a child and having security in that. Here's what Romans 8 says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And listen, that's not an empty cry. Your father hears that. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But, moving to our second implication, it keeps going. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also might be glorified with him. Here's the thing, second implication. Our future blessings in Christ ought to produce present faithfulness and endurance. In the life of faith, we are not guaranteed, quote-unquote, blessing in the way we like to describe blessing in this life. We're just not. But there is something in the future that awaits us, and it is safe, and it is secure. Look at the blessing that Isaac gives to Jacob back in verse 27 of Genesis 27. He says, see the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord had blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. It's quite the blessing, isn't it? I mean, it includes provision, bountiful provision. It includes power, it includes honor. And here's the thing, if we are really co-heirs with Christ, guess what our future has in store? All of those things. All of those things. The language here of plenty of grain and wine, it's the picture of a banquet table. And listen, this life that we live, it's full of suffering. It's full of hardships. It's full of things that we would never post on social media and hashtag it as blessed. We just wouldn't do it. But what awaits us is precisely what is promised here. And it's secure in Jesus. We are awaiting the marriage supper of the Lamb. The one where Jesus welcomes the undeserved, welcomes the unlikely, welcomes the unimpressive, welcomes the deceivers and all sorts of people who mess it up along the way. And he opens an invitation to us, arms extended, and says, welcome home, enjoy the feast. That is what awaits us in the future. And listen, it's real. Because he who promised will see it through. He who promised is faithful. Jesus has staked his own blood on this so that you and I can be welcomed home. That's our future blessing. That's blessing in the ultimate sense. And what that means is right now, we can live in light of that end. We can endure. We can ask the Spirit to remind us of those truths of Romans 8 so we might settle ourselves with a confidence before the Lord that we are loved, that our Father looks at us though we're undeserving and says, I love you and I'm proud of you. And here's what your future looks like. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? That's the gospel. 
And that's an open invitation to any and everybody in this room. We're invited to turn away from our manipulation, our grasping for control, our putting on of somebody else's outfit to try to impress people, to turn away from the sin that clings so closely to the things that just distract us in this life and yield in faith like Isaac does to the word of God, which is sure and trustworthy and true. Because Jesus staked his own blood on it. Listen, the story of Hebrews 11 is that it is grace from top to bottom. It is God's work from beginning to end. And he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. And that's good news for us as we try to make the messiness of our lives endure in faith, doesn't it? It's good news. Cling to Jesus. It's our only way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this messed up family, this story that you've preserved for us, all sorts of questions and deception and messiness in this account, but we thank you that it actually shows us something about faith for us today. And I pray that for everyone in this room, we would be stirred up to see that our future blessing is secure in you, Jesus. That because you became cursed in our place, we receive blessing that is undeserved and is freely grace upon grace. God, may you reignite that in our hearts today. Pray that we would worship you, gratitude, that we would give our lives to you as a response to that. God, we thank you that you use broken, messy, unlikely people in unlikely ways to show us your grace and your kindness. We don't deserve that, but we're so grateful. So Lord, I pray that every person in this room would be drawn to an enduring faith and repentance because of your kindness. Help us get a bigger vision of that. Help us to live faithfully as your spirit empowers. We pray that all in Jesus' name.